You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. Great to be back here at home in TW11 for the first time in a couple of weeks. The sun is shining here as I reflect on a, an extraordinary journey first to Melbourne and then to Keeneland for the Breeders' Cup. Flightline's victory in the Breeders' Cup Classic, about which I spoke extensively with Tom yesterday, was followed up with his immediate retirement to stud and then yesterday's extraordinary unprecedented auction when a 2.5% fractional offering of the horse came under the hammer at Keeneland Auction House, just a couple of yards away from where he'd crossed the line on Saturday night. Just how did it all unfold? Well, in a minute, I'll be getting comment on this from the Racing Post's Jonathan Harding, who was researching the story yesterday. But first of all, here's Keeneland's European representative who was on site, Ed Prosser. Well, uh, well, Nick, I, I've, I've been involved with Keeneland, I think, for 10 years, and I don't ever remember seeing the sale ring packed like it was. Um, every seat was taken and people crowded around the windows outside. You just couldn't have timed it best, really. Sort of flight line has caught the imagination of everyone around the world and particularly um, in Kentucky. Uh, the, his trophy from winning the, the, the classic was on the rostrum um, with his garland. And, uh, you know, video of his races was played and it, it was just um, quite an extraordinary moment, as you say. I'd imagine pretty stirring. Now, tell me tell me about the nuts and bolts of the bidding and, and who it was coming down to in the in the closing stages. You, you couldn't just turn up and bid, probably quite understandably. You had to be pre-cleared by Keeneland to be able to bid. And there were 45 different people that were, that, that were cleared. Um, there was a sort of huge amount of in, huge amount of different bidders early on. Uh, someone on the internet bid up to three point nine million dollars, and then the, the final the final exchanges were sort of fought out by um, a Cornwall group: Mike, Michael Tabor, MV Magna, Tom Magna, and David Watchman, um, who sat in a row, and and then Freddie Seitz, whose family have owned Brookdale Farm in Kentucky for many years. Um, finally got the winning bid at $4.6 million, as you say, outbidding Coolmore, who were probably a little surprised uh, not to get the share. And at what, uh, at, at what point did Freddie Seitz come in? Were Coolmore already bidding away when, when, when he stepped he, in? He'd been bidding for quite a while. He was sat near the, the press desk, so everyone got, got a good view of him. Um, I probably... He, he was certainly bidding from about 3 million onwards. Um, and I think, I, think, I, think, I think there were an awful lot of people that probably had come with a, a budget way over a lot, or what a lot of people expected and were fairly confident of getting the share and, and didn't get it in the end. Yes, so it was it was pretty extraordinary the whole thing. Yes, certainly in the around the grounds last week, even on the basis that we all thought and or knew that Flightline would win and win by a long way, we were sort of thinking. Well, I remember Mike Rapoli when I interviewed him the other day was starting at you know 
a couple of million to to uh, to value him at around about a hundred million, and maybe work upwards from there, and maybe build in another million on top of that for sort of you know cachet or or boast value, if you like. But four point six is a serious investment, whichever way you're looking at. It is, and it's been um, slightly ever ever since it was announced it was going to be shown, sold this share. It's been one of those uh, great talking points, as you say. You probably. Have- a lot of people asked you when you were over what what, what it was going to make, and um, uh, obviously it didn't go down in value after Saturday. And um, everyone had a, had a different idea. And um, I know even when she was in there, I was standing with people trying to do some side bets. And uh, I think I think no no one remotely thought it would make that much. But I think it is it is obviously probably above what what two and a half percent. A flight line will turn out to be worth, but but it's probably the only opportunity most people would would get to take a share in him. So, and it's it's market forces really. It's what someone is willing to pay. So um, yeah, I don't think many would have many would have predicted it. Ed Prosser there, European representative for Keeneland. Jonathan Harding is a writer on the Racing Post, a double nominee for this year's Horse Race Writers and Photographers Awards, and is with me today. Uh, Jonathan. Uh, is a horse, can a horse be worth $184 million? Just to put it into context, that's, as one Twitter observer posted yesterday, more than the latest Boeing 787 Dreamliner. Well, he looked a little bit like a Boeing when he won the Breeders' Cup Classic, so if there was any horse that could get towards those figures in recent years, it would be Flightline, but the reality is this is sort of a theoretical value based on that 2.5% share sold for $4.6 million, as we touched upon there. We sort of experts predicted it would go for telephone numbers, but I think there was still a bit of shock that 2.5% went for $4.6 million. He's going to have to be fairly busy in the, uh, in the breeding sheds next year to, to put a dent in that investment. Uh, he's probably closer, I think, the estimate to $100 million felt optimistic but probably isn't a million miles off and now everybody's sort of waiting with bated breath to see how much he's going to stand for and and how much how soon those investors make their money back and isn't that the key question that the effect that this has as a putative value on the horse as to what his stud fee is going to be because people were suggesting 125 150 175 thousand dollars now if you've got a theoretical value of 184 million you are then somewhat at liberty to say well there you go the marketplace has told you what the horse is worth stud, stud fee must be higher maybe 2 maybe 250 something in that in that in that region you've got to expect the fact that the 4.6 million some of that is to do with the hype around this horse to do with the excitement and the x factor and of course let's not forget he's he's beautifully bred as well i i was trying to crunched the numbers yesterday and spoke to a a couple of bloodstock agents who sort of put the likely fee in the region of $175,000, possibly pushing up to 200, but you'd never know it might go north of that. And if you think American Pharaoh stood for 200,000 in his first year, justify 150,000, two triple crown winners, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that he might stand for 200 and and, and what, and what if, kind of what kind of books did they cover in their first year jonathan american pharaoh co- covered roughly he was sent about 200 mares just over 
justifying his first season was incredibly busy. I think the joint busiest sire that season, he was sent 252 off the top of my head. So, you know, if you're working on the doing the maths and working out, well, if if flight line were to stand for 200,000 and he was sent 200 mares, mm. we're, we're looking at 50 odd million dollars potentially. So, yes. and, you know, if he was sent 150 to 250 mares, 30 million to 50 million dollars per year, which is extraordinary. And then suddenly you're realizing that you're going to get your money back within three or four years. And then it doesn't look like a, a bad investment. But as I say, you wonder if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that there is a, a common interest in that horse making a lot of money or that share making a lot of money because it means that the, that the stud fee can be can be driven up. A couple of interesting points I thought from Ed's interview there, that there were 40 plus or 45 registered parties who had active in, intent to to bid. What did you make of that? Well, I mean, it speaks to the, it speaks to the popularity of this horse and, and so much of it, I think, let's not forget, he, he cost a fair bit as a yearling. I think he cost a million pounds as a yearling. He's a son of Tappet, who's an, a very very good sire over in the States. So he he almost had a running start before he even hit the track. He was already incredibly valuable before he even ran. And then you think the manner of his performances in this, you know, when you're, when you're drawing comparisons to Secretariat, rightly or wrongly, there is going to be a degree of hype and there is going to be interest. And like you say, it's not surprising so many people who could go, who had the facilities to go to that sort of level for two and a half percent were interested and I think you, you raise an incredibly good point about this is sort of maybe an, an important step in terms of how much these horses could go for and how much they could stand for as well. If you're a breeder now and, and Flightline goes for 200,000, you might be able to push your sire up relative to what Flightline has achieved and just raise that bar a little bit. Because I think he might be mm. the benchmark now for American sire prices this is it whether it's all dragged up accordingly what it does enable other big stallion stations to do is to say right well if he's in at 250 200 well we would have been in at 100 we might go up to 125 so you know i, th I think that they're, they're worth what people are willing to pay aren't they and while 250,000 might sound obscene it's, it's actually not a million miles off you think dubawi stands for 250,000 now of course he's a proven sire an exceptional sire Frankel 200. So it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he could stand for north of 200. And then while it makes me incredibly anxious, the idea that someone's just spent more than four and a half million dollars on two and a half percent of a horse, the maths might actually not be that far off. But there's so many things that have to go right in order for that enormous investment and excitement to pay off. And I think, fingers crossed it does, because we, we, we want his offspring to race and if they're anywhere near as talented as their dad it's very exciting let's do a, a, a rather sharp u-turn and um uh, head back to the uk because the first really significant meeting of the of the jump season takes place this weekend it's cheltenham's paddy power meeting obviously we've had lots of good racing already over jumps but this is a a really important um bellwether fixture uh, we'll keep keeping an eye on the weather as well leading up to the, the event because it's it's quite damp in, in the UK at the moment. But one horse who has excelled at Cheltenham on numerous occasions before, and the Paddy Power Gold Cup wouldn't be the Paddy Power Gold Cup without him, is the 
swashbuckling front runner cool cody trained in wales by evan williams i put in a call to evan this morning to ask him uh, whether his recent pipe opener over hurdles had brought the horse forward ahead of saturday well it needed to nick you know i i thought you know um we we had plenty of room for improvement there um but look we were always going to try and get to this meeting and, um, you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed that will happen. Now, plenty of times before we and, dare I say, you might have thought, well, he's got it to do at the weights today and he's had this incredible way of confounding us all. What sort of what sort of zest has he still got at 11, do you think? Um, I thought, I, look, we had to go to Cheltenham the other day Nick, to, to find out because I can't tell you from what I see at home or don't see at home, so... I'm a little bit in the dark. <sighs> Look, he seems well. He seems happy. I can't tell you any more than that. For some reason, when he gets to Cheltenham, he changes. So I, I don't know. I don't know. And has, has that has that been the case ever since you first took him to Cheltenham? That that he's always just been a completely different animal as soon as he sees the place and so, as soon as he hits that hits that chase course. Well, it's strange that because because. That's the facts, you know. I mean, it's strange. I mean, the track shouldn't suit him. Um, you know, he dives off to the right and, and tries to go through fences under them, sideways over them. I mean, you know, he's got his own old way about doing it, but the old place suits him. I just suppose it's the old say, horses for courses, and I suppose there's never a truer saying, really, is there? But it's obviously something to do with the place rather than the, the actual configuration of the course, isn't it? That he's obviously just gets kind of somehow lit up by it. Probably, Nick. I mean, it, yes, that's that's the way it seems. And um, I mean, I know he's, he's an old boy and he shouldn't get revved up by these things, but, but it does seem to, to light his fuse somewhat. Um, but you go there in hope more than expectation. But what, what an amazing horse he's been there. Well, Nick, I think when you get when he you, when you have a horse that's done what he has done around you know, the home of jump racing, one of those handicaps, you know, then if he was a grade one horse, it would almost be sort of lost, lost, lost amongst the greats, as it were. But because he's done it in handicaps, I suppose he's got his own place in working man's uh, sort of uh, folklore type of thing, you know, because those handicaps are notoriously difficult to win one, but to, to win as many as he has done just goes to show that it's a strange old job at times. Now, Evan, you've got a, a runner potentially in the Greatwood hurdle, a mare called Current Mood, who's got a bit of Cheltenham form. Um, she ran quite well. It'll call my eye, at least, on her comeback at, at Foss Lass. Are you minded to, to run her this weekend? Were you, were you happy with that, that comeback run? A big, strong mare. Lovely, a lovely, lovely mare. She's, she's um, as you can imagine, uh, she's a chestnut mare, and that she wouldn't be this most straightforward. But um, I thought her running Foss Lass promised plenty. Um, and, and I'm not against looking at um, a good handicap. She'd need rain, though, Nick. She she would have to have cut in the ground, really, you know. Um, but I thought some of her form, if you take it literally, some of her Cheltenham novice form, I, I do think that there's a day in her in a race of, of you know, value. And, and obviously some of that really good novice form behind Blazing Carl was over two and a half, three miles. Uh, obviously, Greatwood's a... At two, do, do you think she's got the pace for that? Probably not, as on good ground. But but I put her in because I do think that a very strong run two mile handicap hurdle um, will bring out her stamina at the end of the race. And I could see her, I could see her taking a, a good handicap hurdle over two mile, provided there was cutting the ground. You know, she she'd need them to go exceptionally hard in in soft ground 
could be seen at the best. Evan Williams there. Uh, interesting thoughts on a, a couple of potential runners uh, Saturday and Sunday at Cheltenham. Um, but all eyes will be focused on another horse trained in Wales and in Welsh ownership as well, Jonathan. Uh, just just tell us why. Tell us the name of the horse and tell us why. Yeah, so the name of the horse is Stolen Silver for up-and-coming trainer Sam Thomas and owner Di Walters, who, of course, were involved in a helicopter accident last week. Uh, Sam Thomas is obviously a bit shaken up by that. He wasn't uh, on the race course to watch Al his Al Dancer, his and Di Walters' Al Dancer win at the weekend. Um, and nor was Di Walters, who sadly... Uh, was moved to intensive care last week, so wishing him all the very best and a and a speedy recovery. It would be an incredibly poignant win if Stolen Silver were to to take the Paddy Power Gold Cup and a continuation of what has been a very good season on the track for Sam Thomas. Is there a horse in the race that catches your eye for for other reasons? I'm very interested in Jamie Snowden's horse, and I'm going to say GA Law rather Galor. I believe GA Law is the pronunciation of that. I'm sure I'll be corrected very swiftly. Um, obviously, ran to a very good level last year and and came back from a very long break to finish third in the Old Run Chase at Aintree. So, I think he could run a run a very big race on his second start of the season. Now, more on the Irish media rights deal. We brought you news last week that Racecourse Media Group, RMG, and their counterparts, SIS, Satellite Information Services, had been announced as the preferred bidders for the rights and that they were now going to enter negotiations with Horse Racing Ireland. There was a meeting yesterday between the Irish tracks and the governing body, HRI, where it has been reported there would be some contentious matters discussed and there may yet be further ramifications here i should always preface any discussion with this by saying that i do a lot of work for racing tv whose parent company is racecourse media group and we have covered a lot of irish racing uh, under that contract so far jonathan what was reported yesterday uh, in a very interesting article so this was a meeting between the hri media rights panel and racecourse officials on monday uh, discussing the sort of new five-year media rights deal that's due to start in 2024. We know RMG were the preferred bidder, but the the article suggests that a few representatives from racecourses aren't particularly happy um, about the fact that they weren't privy to the details of the other bids um, from sort of Sky Sports and the like. And it relates really around a lack of transparency on that front uh, in terms of the the money, there doesn't seem to be too much sort of dispute or debate. Uh, the suggestion is that the the figures are good. It's just how they will, A, how they will be distributed between HRI, which takes 16% of media rights income and the race courses. And equally, the important thing to come out from this meeting and this article is the suggestion that some of the tracks, those not owned by HRI and some of the smaller tracks may potentially split from that deal and try and broker their own agreements um, in sort of not in protest, but just to get sort of favorable terms for them, which would be a, a big step. And uh, yeah, very interesting situation evolving. Now, the biggest shareholder in RMG, Racecourse Media Group, is the Jockey Club and their group of racecourses. And it was announced yesterday uh, by Lucy Elder in The Horse and Hound that the contract to run Blenheim horse trials had been ended by the Jockey Club. It was an unusual agreement between a racecourse group and uh, another sporting entity that one would manage the other. 
Uh, they had a five-year contract and the Jockey Club has exercised its break clause after two years citing the current economic crisis. Uh, Ian Renton, who is the Jockey Club director of the Western region, said the following... Um, we have made the difficult decision to end our contract with the Blenheim Palace International Horse Trials. Uh, the current economic climate is unfortunately going to have an impact on us all. We're proud to have led the way in eventing in Britain as we emerge from the pandemic, but we now feel the time is right to concentrate on our core mission of acting for the long-term benefit of British horse racing with our profits being reinvested into that sport. Going forward, the Jockey Club will continue to work with the wider equestrian world. With Aintree International Equestrian Centre, we're able to offer a world-class facility. Um uh, clearly, prioritising racing has got to be the Jockey Club's key mission. But is there any part of that citation of the of the economic climate that that should should nonetheless worry us? And, and given what might be going through the minds of senior executives in the sport at the moment, Jonathan? Look, I think racing should naturally be worried by that. With sport doesn't exist in a in a vacuum, and racing, like all other sports and all other leisure pursuits, is going to be affected by the ongoing cost of living crisis and it's not a surprise that while people up and down the country tighten their purse strings the jockey club is having to do the same and and it says here in the quote it's sort of focusing on its core mission of acting for the long-term benefit of british horse racing so this is sort of the first thing to go perhaps logically the first sort of thing that it's cutting back on but I think the the picture at the Jockey Club is a little bit worrying. We know attendances generally, and and we've been tracking this sort of monthly in the in the paper. Attendances generally have struggled in Britain throughout the summer. There was a hope that it might slightly upturn with the return of the jumps. Um, still waiting on those figures, but Cheltenham wasn't really packed to the rafters for its opening meeting. And look, Jockey Club is going to be affected in the way all racecourse groups and, and all of racing is by this crisis. So it's the one that is sort of a watching brief, I think, to see whether there are any other cost-cutting measures across its tracks. But yeah, the attendances aren't going to help it. So it's Tuesday and it is the day where we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, the Stallion Book, their Global Stallion app, and of course those lovingly prepared pedigree pages. And yes, step forward Trevor Stewart's family of Cassandra Go because it has produced yet another Group 1 horse, a Grade 1 horse in the shape of Victoria Road, winner of the Breeders' Cup, the Juvenile Turf for Ryan Moore and Aidan O'Brien. From from Little Acorns, I suppose, uh, Cassandra Go borders a foal in the mid-90s and she has produced a, a mini-dynasty uh, of top-class animals that has become breed-shaping. Victoria Road himself, a son of her daughter, Tickle Pink, um, and he's by Saxon Warrior. Trevor Stewart joins me now. Trevor, first of all, let's just refre- reflect on Friday and, and for you what, what this meant and, and how special it was. Uh, Friday was absolutely amazing. Uh, obviously, to have a, my first runner in um, the uh, Breeders' Cup was amazing. And to think that actually he won. He won, as you said, with a superb ride by Ryan. Um, he came through a gap which I thought he wasn't going to come to and I nearly hit the television in rage because I thought they were going to come in on top of him and he went right through and won, won obviously uh, Shea Gozley at the end but uh, yeah just fantastic ride and fantastic experience and I, I mentioned that this was the, the latest in a line of extraordinary moments over the last sort of two and a half decades take us right back to the beginning and, and Cassandra go and, and, and why why you came to get her and why you came to keep her and why you came to do what you did with her? 
Well, I decided um, it was in 1996 uh, that, um, or 97, I can't quite remember, uh, that I'd like to buy a really nice phone. And I asked Josh Collins of... Um, to buy to find the nicest phone that he could find, Philly phone. I wasn't there myself. He he gave me a short list, and I, uh, I decided that she was grey. And I thought there was a lot of uh, I've always loved grey ponies before that. And I thought, right, I'll go with the nicest grey. So on the telephone with Joss, uh, we bought her, and uh, and that was just the start of a wonderful story. Then she was prepared for the sales. Uh, by James Egan for uh, the following year, went to the sales, and I slightly got a rush of blood and um, bought her back. Uh, I can say within one minute of buying her back, I didn't know what, why I had done it, but it worked out um, a wonderful story thereafter. So so you, you fully intended to sell her? And- fully intended to sell her, and I just got a rush of blood at the time, and... Um, just afterwards, when the girl was approaching me to sign the docket, I thought, what the hell have I done? <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of those wonderful stories. And then I'd always uh, wanted to have a horse with Jeff Rack. It was, he was sort of my dream trainer. And I went and found him that day and I said, something dreadful has happened. I bought a horse back. My wife isn't very happy with me. Would you please train her? And a wonderful story after that happened. Um, you know, he certainly, in my view, was one of the greatest trainers we've ever seen. And just for those who don't remember um, or aren't familiar, just remind us why she was called Cassandra Go in the first place. Well, we've become very good friends with a jeweller called Cassandra Goat. And uh, just in the kitchen one day with my wife, we were trying to go through names, and she suddenly said, Why can't we call her Cassandra Go? And um, so uh, that was the real reason why. And, and and the jeweler became more and more famous off the back of her. Absolutely, yes. So certainly she's been a, a, a wonderful friend as well. So it's a lovely story. She was a terrific um, racehorse herself. Um, when you when you came to breeding from her, how and how and why did you take the decisions that you did initially? What what sort of what guided you? Um. Question. Uh, well, at the time, obviously, we decided we'd keep her. We weren't going to sell her. We got many offers, and uh, Green Desert was the, was the one of the leading sires at the time, and we just thought, why not go to him? So we went to him, and we got a lovely filly called Never Let Me Go, and uh, we, we raised who you know was a, a reasonably decent filly, and thereafter uh, we went to Green Desert again, and so we went down the line and. Uh, Obviously, then the best one that came along was um, Theanne and Halfway to Heaven. Mm. And half and Halfway to Heaven herself. I remember being there when she she won the Nassau Stakes at, at Goodwood. Very very tough filly um, by by Pivotal, and and then and then she was the beneficiary of the wonderful Pivotal Galileo crosses that started to blossom and materialise. And 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 magical was the was the most magical result of all, but not the only one. No, uh, she had rhododendron, uh, magical, and you know two superb fillies. And obviously, rhododendron now has has uh, bred Augusta Rodan by Deep Impact, so uh, it looks very exciting for next year. And uh, so, you know, I, I really was so lucky that Coolmore bought into into her fillies because obviously, then you know, uh, she went to all the top sires, and obviously, Aidan then training the the offspring has made a very big difference to the family. 
So I think everybody's keeping up with the way this, this dynasty is going here. But it, it's interesting that you've had two branches of, of Cassandra Goh's family, both um, both clicking really well with that Deep Impact sire line. So as you, as you mentioned, um, August Rodan by Deep Impact himself, and of course your, your homebred Victoria Road the other day by Deep Impact's son, Saxon Warrior. Was this, was this really your hunch, Trevor? I, I read that it probably was. It was a hunch. I mean, uh, for instance, Tickle Pink had been to uh, Dark Angel. She'd been to Shamardown. Um, she'd been to um, uh, Frankel um, and Gleneagle. So I sort of, in a way, I feel I had thrown, you know, everything at her. They had been good without being top, top level. So I thought, well, Deep Impact was an incredible star in Japan. And I thought, well, why not try a total... A uh, new line and see if, if that works. So I was sent her to Deep Impact. I also sent Cassandra Go to Deep to sorry not Deep Impact to Saxon Warrior, and I also sent um, Cassandra Go to Saxon Warrior. So it'll be interesting to see. He's got she's got a the two year old um, called Change Things. He hasn't run this year, but I think he looks above average for next year. And where is he now? He's with Paddy Toomey. So we nearly got him to the race course, but he decided at the last minute that, no, we just leave him and prepare him for, hopefully, a very exciting year next year. It, it strikes me that, that all the way along, there have been times when you could have taken money and you didn't. You could have got out of a horse when you didn't. You could have done all sorts of things. But there's something that has kind of pulled you and drawn you back in to sort of whole, a whole investment in this, in this line. Why is that? Well, I think Cassandra Go changed my whole um, life within the racing industry. And it's a total love all the way through. I love racing horses. Um, and, you know, just that whole uh, satisfaction in, you know, the family continuing. Um, and I keep calling it my family. You know, it's a bit ridiculous, but I do. And it's uh, just a wonderful feeling of achievement. Uh, really, a lot of it I put down to luck. A lot of it, I've been so lucky with the trainers, uh, Jeff Rag, Henry Cecil, Aidan O'Brien, who've trained the progeny. I've been so lucky with a very good friend, James Handley, where I keep my main mares in Ballyhimican, and the staff there, and the way they've been brought, uh, the, been, all the, the stock have been brought along. And put all those together, and it just gives great uh, satisfaction and pride. And has your own family, your real own real family, your human family, um, warmed to the to this experience as much as you? Oh, totally. Um, I have uh, four children. Two of my eldest sons are very interested. In fact, I, they're maybe too interested. I'm trying to control them a little in investing themselves. And uh, yeah, it's really changed us uh, uh, totally in that horses have become a big part of our everyday life, talking about what's happening, who's been covered, what's coming along. And yeah, it's a great excitement and it's been a great thrill. You know, it's a wonderful hobby when it goes well. And of course, it went well as, uh, as I returned to where I began on, on, on Friday night. The clue's in the title, really. It is called the Breeders' Cup uh, for, for a breeder of a racehorse to, to be on that international stage. Was that something a little different to what you'd felt before? I think definitely, because, you know, it is the end of a long season. It is bringing together uh, the Europeans and the Americans. And, you know, it isn't easy for the Europeans going there at the end, as I say, at the end of a long season, tracks that are very different from our tracks. And I think to win there 
is something very different than winning on, on home turf. So, yes, it's just an amazing feeling. And for all the uh, um, texts and calls I've had, uh, it's you know just a fantastic feeling. Trevor Stewart there, uh, the breeder of Victoria Road, and what a dynasty he founded off the back of his terrific mare, Cassandra Go. And can't wait to see that Deep Impact cult come out as well. Now, it is not long until this year's Racehorse Owners Association Awards. They'll take place on Thursday, the 8th of December. Uh, I will be back hosting the event this year. And one of the sponsors of this year's event is The Tote, who've lent their support to it pretty wholeheartedly in recent times. It gives me a very good excuse, not that I needed it, to check in with the uh, group chief executive of the UK Tote, Alex Frost. Um, I'll be hearing a little bit more about his home breeding exploits in a few moments' time, because we've got a very interesting runner at Cheltenham at the weekend. But first of all, Alex, why have you decided to um, get stuck in and lend your support to the ROA Awards again? as an organisation that's, that's endeavouring to put as much money as possible into prize money. We've had a partnership um, with the benefactors of prize money, the, the Racehorse Owners Association, um, and we're delighted to be supporting once again in December. And from a tote perspective, Alex, where has where the organisation come in, in 2022? Where's the progress been made? Yeah, no, I think everyone's probably getting quite bored of me ranting on about Whirlpool and, and all the team here, but I think the racecourse is now... Um, those that are um, partnering us here um, in Whirlpool are, are really seeing the benefits of it. Um, Whirlpool was up in contributions up 44% this year on a very strong year last year. So um, that's really starting to feed through now. Um, I think York was a great conclusion. That's po- possibly the day when I think we all really realised um, when, when, when William Darby stood up and, and showed off the prize money that, that York had for the Whirlpool days, which was up to 4.6 million, um, you know, as, as a small owner, um, an ROA uh, member, it was great to see horses rated in the 70s running for that minimum prize of, of 100 grand a race. I thought that was um, a great, great testament to um, what Whirlpool has taken us to. Uh, so, so to what extent is is Whirlpool responsible for that? I mean, how how much extra prize money can it can it generate for owners? Well, just sticking with York and, and you know, all the other racecourses have been fantastic. But, you know, William was very clear to point out that, you know, 100% of the media rights money was going straight into prize money. Um, but as I say, you know, seeing seeing that money come in um, that demonstrably, I don't think there's anywhere in the world where you see horses rated in the high 70s running for 100,000 um, outside sales races. I thought, thought that was a real um, moment. And as the Hong Kong Jock Club and all those involved in Whirlpool keep re- reminding us, you know, we feel strongly we're only in the very first stages of the, um, the, the, the development and the rollout of Whirlpool. You know, there's just 17 days we've had in the UK so far, but God willing, there's plenty more to come and there is plenty more revenue behind behind that to come. So do you think there'll be more UK Whirlpool days in 2023? That, that really is a decision for the um, Hong Kong government. Um, the process is that the Hong Kong Jock Club um, put their proposals forward. Um, I think on the basis we've got 17 of the 22 global Whirlpool days, and we're doing pretty well as it is. I think it's just a question now of backing the concept, growing um, where we are, whether it be through new bet types, adding new countries, and there's plenty of um, progress there. Um, then we can, you know, benefit from that uh, immediately. But 
yes, absolutely. We hope for more, more, more days as we go forward, but the process is underway and we'll, we'll know more on the future days um, at the beginning of next year. So you or the UK Tote is now the co-chair of the World Tote Association. What does that mean? Very good question. Um, no, we have, it's an amalgamation, the World Tote Association is an amalgamation of all the form, former organisations. So you had a European, um, you had the EPMA, you had the Asian version and um, the US are also involved. So um, yeah, I know it's, it's a great honour. We have 27 uh, countries involved in the World Tote Association now. Um, we were on the board um, very privileged to be on the board previously, but we're now chairing it for the next two years, which clearly is a great opportunity to bring everybody together, work on further integration, and explore how you know we can get more money and, and volumes into the pools and see the sport benefit accordingly. It's, it's a fantastic opportunity, and we're very honoured to be in, in the seat. Uh, yes, so it sounds like your, your influence should grow in that case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but I think all countries have come together with, with the expressed intent of, of working together. I think you've, got, you've gone from an environment only just recently, um, to about four or five years ago, where totes were very insular, racial jurisdictions were very insular. I think now they look at the, the advent of um, internet betting and just how you know, transient it is to have a bet anywhere in the world. And that's um, afforded sort of revenue streams going here, there and everywhere. So the control, if you like, that they had on their own flow um, has, has gone. Um, and that's why I think working with partners to allow people to have bets like Hong Kong have done on international markets um, gives that legal market um, real um, strength and liquidity. And, and then with us working on all the, all the pricing points, you know, makes it a very, very viable proposition. Um, and we would strongly encourage people to, to give it a go and, and to get behind the tote. And that clearly will enable more of these days and more of these revenue streams to come through. Now, you as an owner breeder yourself have got Queen's Gamble engaged at Cheltenham at the weekend on, on Saturday when she won on her bumper debut there last year. Uh, she went into everybody's notebooks as a horse to follow. Uh, is she going to run? How is she getting on? Yeah, no, she's um, fantastic. She's a great character. Um, I don't know if you've seen her dancing in the mornings, but she's um pretty freaky in terms of her her, her charm and um, characteristics. Um, she's in great form. Um, I think Oliver doesn't do much with her at home. The idea is to keep her happy and fresh. She's only four, um, so hopefully very formative stages. Yeah, she goes there, but um, half of Ireland has spotted the race as well. So, um, And I think um, Nicky Henderson's got his very smart Lucia running. So yeah, it should be um, a fantastic race. Um, I think the top of the ground will suit her, but um, we'd love to see um, Oliver have a good week and um, set, set us up for Saturday. And uh, she's a third generation homebred, right? So, so you've you've been involved with the family for what twenty odd years? Yeah, my dad and and John Inverdale and, and a team had um, a mare called Gambling Spirit with Henry Candy. Um, she broke down on the gallops right in front of us, um, and Henry persuaded me. Um, to take her on as a broodmare with my mother-in-law, um, who is sadly no longer with us. Um, but we went down to Coolmore and very persuaded by the looks of Hawkwing, who then produced Gambling Girl. Um, Hawkwing sadly didn't make it as a stallion, as we all know. Um, and then this is Gambling Girl's first offspring. But Gambling Girl, um, after many bumps in the road, gave us 
tremendous pleasure winning seven races for Jesse Harrington, including that that um, very competitive grade three novice hurdle at Diane Royal from last weekend. She was very, very smart. So this is her first offspring by getaway. Um, expectations were extremely low, but um, no, so far she's surpassed them all and everything from here is a massive bonus. My thanks to Alex Frost there. Right, the TRC rankings have just dropped and what a significant week it is. A dynamic week off the back of Melbourne Cup Carnival and the Breeders' Cup. And here we go. Let's do, give you a top 20. At 20, he's still in there. He defended his champion stakes title with great honour under Jamie Karzaki, rounded off the Melbourne Cup Carnival at Flemington in style. He's at number 20. Down four at 19 is title holder from Japan. Down four after a respectable fourth in the Breeders' Cup turf sprinter. 18 is Highfield Princess. Down four at 17 after disappointing in the Breeders' Cup distaff is Nest. And up three goes her retiring stable companion, Malathart, who won the same race. Down three at 15 is the Breeders' Cup classic runner-up Olympiad. And down three at 14 is the um, Breeders' Cup mile, very creditable third, Kin Ross. And that is because horses have gone rocketing up, particularly Cody's Wish, who beat a very good horse in Cyberknife for that wonderful story in the Breeders' Cup dirt mile. He has gone up 17 places to number 13. Jackie's Warrior, he couldn't get it done in the Breeders' Cup again. He is down three places at 12, but up 11 places at 11, and he finishes ahead of all the other Godolphin three-year-olds this year. It is modern games, the Breeders' Cup mile hero. Steady at 10 is the sadly now retired through injury epicenter. Nine up a whopping 15 places is Rebels Romance after that victory in the Breeders' Cup turf. He enters the top 10. Jack Christopher is steady at 8. He couldn't run in the Breeders' Cup uh, through injury. Steady at 7 is Nature Strip, who was defeated again in Australia the other day on Champions Day. Likewise, his compatriot Animo, but he had enough in the bank to keep him at 6. Alpinista could yet go higher. If she wins the Japan Cup, that's her next and final target. She's at five. Four, life is good, retires at a very respectable four after his probably most important run in many respects when fourth in the Breeders' Cup Classic. The stayer Kiprios remains at three. The retired Baid retires at two. And Flightline now at stud. Is he worth 180 odd million dollars? Time will tell. Uh, but he certainly looked every bit of it on Saturday. And he is clear at the top, the best racehorse in the world. So thanks to all my guests today. Uh, Jonathan Harding is back with you uh, and he's got a tip for you for this afternoon. I do indeed, Nick. I'm going to side with Stella Magic in the 3.30 at Lingfield. It looks like a very competitive race, but he seems to go well fresh and he could be a staying hurdler to keep on side this season. Jonathan, thanks so much. Thanks to you for listening. As always, I will be back here from TW11 tomorrow, but from now, from all the team, as the sun comes out here, it's bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.